RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 5, Episode 13, Draft Introduction to Star Trek Lives, 1975. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Yes, welcome back to a very special edition of The Trek Files this week, all you Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek history buffs, all you canonistas, I say that lovingly, and of course... All you Trekophiles, spelled with an F, listen, we have a very special guest this week. We're going to take a second pass from a different angle of a document we did very early. So take a listen to an audio sample. But of course, you can always find our documents right there on our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Get this week's document. Take a listen here and then come right back because I have a really special guest this week. For myself and for the remarkable cast, production staff, and crew who somehow came together during those bruising, exhausting, completely lovely years, it was an effort to prove to people that are willing to think beyond the petty beliefs which have for so long kept humanity divided. We used to joke that we suspected there was an intelligent life form out there and planned to use our show to signal some of these thoughts to them. But never in our wildest imaginings did we expect the volume and intensity of the replies that we received. All right. I am so excited, everybody. Take a look at that. Um, Take a look at the whole document. It's cool because, once again, it's Gene's handwritten notes on the introduction to a book at at that time called The Realm of Star Trek, but which we have come to know as... Star Trek Lives, which was one of the seminal nonfiction books in Star Trek's early years, the first wave of fandom, and really the first time anybody sat back at what had become, within just three or four years, and again, two years before the Star Wars phenomenon hit, uh, it was really the first look at what this whole Star Trek crazy new thing was all about. And that's why I am so thrilled to have our guest this week. Uh, who was right there in the driver's seat with that first wave of fandom, much of which was driven by the fan fiction writers, the zine editors and publishers, which became the clubs, became the conventions, and were off to the races. <laughs> of course, I'm talking about, um, and, and had a finger in so much else that was going on with fandom at the time. I'm so thrilled to have Jacqueline Lichtenberg with us. Jacqueline, thank you so much for being with us on the Trek Files. Thank you so much for having me. This was so long overdue. Like, I have my list of people I want to have on because not only were you there in the day, you've been very active with your writing since then as a fan fiction writer and other pursuits. We were just laughing about this, about how, you know, you wear many hats, but you also get it as far as what's happened to Star Trek and what's happened to media and the culture since then, and you're right in the middle of it now. Why don't you tell everybody what you, like, give me give me your um, your your uh, shingle on the wall for, for early Star Trek and today. Early Star Trek. Well, see, the thing is that early Star Trek was the first real science fiction on television. Before that, there were some mostly little kiddie shows. Mm-hmm. There were 
uh, satire, and there was horror. They made Hollywood made a lot of films they marketed as science fiction that were really horror. And there's a big difference between science fiction and horror. At the thematic level where the view of the universe is expressed in terms of where you put the camera and what characters you pick up and carry through whatever adventure is going on. In horror, the premise is that humans always lose. <laughs> the most we can expect when we go up against purest evil or any enemy less than that is a draw. Uh-huh. You can you can put the evil in a box and and seal it with sigils and it'll stay there for a few hundred years, but eventually it'll get out. The thing with science fiction is that science was ignited like in the late 1800s mm -hmm. and by the 1940s it was catching on as a um as a general cultural thing that was sort of admired and there were early radio shows in the 1930s kid shows that gene roddenberry grew up on about kids, little kids, teenagers who knew science and invented things and went out on adventures on their own. One of them was about a kid and his father who made airplanes and flew out over Africa and other adventurous places that nobody had heard of them. They were darkest Africa because right. they were no match. <laughs> Um, and that was where they used science to overcome the unknowable mm -hmm. and the unknown. In other words, to advance the frontiers. Radbury picked up on, on that, pushing the frontier of human knowledge out and out and out. And by the time he was um, writing for The Lieutenant and other half-hour TV dramas, the westerns he wrote for Have Gun Will Travel. While he yeah. was doing that, he was brewing up the idea of, yeah, we we conquered the West, we conquered the world, we live everywhere. Now we gotta conquer space. How yeah. are we gonna do that? Well, he wasn't really that into the science of how we're gonna do that. He just said, well, jump over that and let's see what life will be like when we do that. The other part of Gene Roddenberry's idea came from his gut feeling that humanity is really very good, essential. The human heart is essentially good, but we're not wise yet. We have to learn wisdom by coming, probably by coming up against something bigger than us, i.e. some monsters from outer space, right? And we'll come away from that encounter having made friends with the monsters and they're not monsters anymore mm -hmm. so we see that in um in episodes like the horta i was just gonna say we see that with our mother horta and all her eggs right yes. when, we, when that's yeah. what we know they are well what so our doc of the week is about star is star trek lives we it's very blithe to say oh Jacqueline was in the first wave of the of the fan fiction writers because that's what for for all the attraction 
that Star Trek was this lightning rod, this pioneering thing that people people who watched the first primetime run of Star Trek and then saw it in the early reruns and syndication when it caught fire and and made many a pro- local program managers you know year <laughs> much less decade um, you know uh, that attract the initial attraction before there was all before it was a franchise and before all you know before everything that we know of Star Trek now the initial spark that drove people crazy and that puzzled a lot of their elders or their siblings or their teachers or whatever I mean th- that was that was the core and what gets me is Star Trek Lives the book was the first time anybody sat down after a few years of this rattling around was to try to can you talk about how like where this get like you were writing I know it was because you came up. We should say you came up with the Kraith universe, which was your own interpretation of of the Vulcan civilization and logic and all of that. Um, that's where that was your kind of your specialty. But in the beginning, you were in that same group that was you were a science fiction person. You were a writer, and you became attracted to Trek and wound up on this path that um, aside from doing fan fiction, you wrote this book with Sandra Marshak. Can you t- and, and, and it tries to analyze and, and dissect and get a handle on this. Can you just talk about what that path was and and what you thought in the day? Because I was doing some reading here recently that that you guys, everybody was excited to hear this book was coming in the early days, and then some people weren't real happy with it. It wasn't what they thought, even though it was a great book. I'm just I just want to hear your your take on your your path there at the beginning and how how the book came about. Well, when I was um, when I was a kid, well, all of my life really, my father was in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a teletype operator for various of uh, the news services. Now we know them as Reuters and uh, and so on, but the you know they conglomerated. Um, and he taught me how to think like a journalist. I don't know that he really taught me. It's just something I like soaked up in the bones, if you know what uh-huh. I mean. This uh-huh. this is part of the house. This is where <laughs> we live. This is what we said when we listened to the news. And one when Star Trek first came on, I was screaming excited. You want me to tell <laughs> tell the story about my first vision of Star Trek? Sure. When when I got married, I, we were living in uh, in Israel, and planning to come back to the to the United States to New, New York to Brooklyn, where my fa- where my husband had relatives, and we you know had a whole new life planned for ourselves, and we finally got here, uh, and I met my new in laws. They had a, a like a big party in the living room of one of the in laws where we were staying. And all the in-laws came over. They'd never seen me. I'd never seen them. We're sitting around the living room and people even sitting on the floor because it was a big crowd. And they're all asking me questions. They want to know. They want to get to know me. You know, who am I? Mm-hmm. And I, somebody flipped through the TV guide, which was a paper book at that time. Right, right. And um, said, well let's see if there's anything on TV, which was kind of a newfangled thing at that time. And somebody handed me the the book and and said, uh, which would you like 
to watch. And right there in front of my eyes, it said Star Trek. Now, before I went to Israel, um, the, the debut of Star Trek in Chicago at the Worldcon had been announced, but I wasn't mm -hmm. going to the Worldcon. I already had my plans to go and, and found a new career in Israel. And it all worked out, and I met my husband. Woo! And we got mm -hmm. married. Wow. And then we come back, and we're sitting with the relatives, and here is these were, you know, in the meantime, while I was in Israel, B. Jo Trimble started her Revive campaign. And I wrote to Gene Roddenberry. This was the first campaign. I wrote to Gene Roddenberry to Paramount. And I said, you must keep this on the air until I get home to see it. Because <laughs> at that time, there was no such thing as home recording of a television show. Uh, and, right. You know, so they did. And. I just for you. Really just happy for you. <laughs> and then my in-laws hand me this book open to the page that says Star Trek is on Channel 4, whatever it was. And so I said, I would like to see Star Trek. They said, what, that, what is that about? And I said, well, it's science fiction, see? Because at that time I hadn't written or published any science fiction. Right. I just wanted to be. And so what happened was this show came on and they very politely, I mean, you could feel the politeness in the room just gripping them. And they let me listen to the whole thing. And we finally got to the last scene. I didn't understand, you know, what to show. Why. I didn't really get the whole thing until that last scene where they show Spock in profile with the ear. And I ended up in the middle of the living room floor, surrounded by, by my brand new in-laws, pointing at the TV screen and screaming at the top of my lungs, <laughs> he's not human! <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. The Spockanalia coined the phrase Spock shock. And uh -huh. that was the definite, well, Spockanalia, the first fanzine, we should say, yes. Yeah, and believe it or not, I remained friends and an integral part of that family. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> this is your first meeting, it's all about the family, and you say, can we watch Star Trek? <laughs> Which they didn't know, and you're, but good on that family, good on your, your in-laws for being patient with you as you found out what you did you went where you had not gone before that's that's an amazing so so it, it you you get to the entire story and it's that it's that alienness of, well that explains much the alienness of spock and so that exactly. was it for you from then in. it's yeah. spock shock that's what it's all about <laughs> i had forgotten that i knew that term until i was just rereading about that so 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 you now I think you know what this is such a big topic we're gonna to have to have you come back and talk about some of your early writing because I wanted to focus on on Star Trek lives here because it's not you know casual fans 
today or modern fa- you know first of all just reading a book if, is it online have they got the pdf i can download so that's that's a thing and so getting back to the building blocks here and people are familiar with you know the blueprints and the tech manual and bjo's concordance and some of those you know really foundational reference books but your but star trek lives was a reference was a was an, an analysis you was, and then in Joni Winston's chapters about being on set the last week and and the first convention, Joni but you Winston. and Sandra, yeah, yeah, you and Sandra have the analytical parts. How did you? And I've been reading here to where the book evolved, like the publishers kept making you aim it to be quote unquote more commercial, which we all generally think we know what that is. But you know, in the vacuum of there not being anything about Star Trek really out there. That must have been quite a. I mean, what did you want to? Is it what you wound up wanting to do? Well, uh, the, the, the idea, the, the idea for the book, really started as an idea for a local newspaper article about Star Trek. About the same time as uh, Spock and Elliot and T Negative were becoming established. And I realized because because there was because science fiction. No, all right, way back when to when I was a kid, right? When I was mm. like ten years old, when I was in seventh grade, I was discovered by science fiction fandom. I didn't discover science fiction fandom; they discovered me. What happened is I wrote a letter to the editor, to Fred Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was editor of If Worlds of If magazine, and he published the letter back in the day when magazines could publish the name and address of people, and it wasn't was like right. illegal. <laughs> you weren't so, stalking. Yeah, that was a journalism staple. The address went after the person's name. It, nobody thought about it, right? Nobody yes. thought about it. And so a whole lot of people wrote to me inviting me into the N3F, the National Fantasy Fan Federation. So um, uh, I joined, and I became a letter hack, and I joined the Round Robin, and I joined the Writers' Workshop, and I was, a, I was huge in fan act until I hit freshman year in college when I had the gaffiate. Y'all know what Gaffiate means. I was going to say you're running through all these, er, these, all these classic. Yeah, so fan act is fan activity. Yes. Uh huh. And Gaffiate is an acronym that means getting away from it all. Exactly. Uh-huh. Wow, it's great to talk to people who you have know the... how to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> well, now people would say, "I got to take a break," or "I got to, I got to take a hiatus," or yeah, yeah. So. Um, or something I more colorful. Back, I got back to fandom actually, um, being active in fandom after I got married. And after yeah. all of this, and after I had a kid, I had a little baby, and I was able to start writing uh, seriously. And I wrote Craith, and I was writing um, books, and then I wrote Star Trek Lives. And all of this was simultaneous. You, you have to understand, there is no difference yeah. between my first novel, House of Zaor, and Star Trek Lives. They are the same thing. I wrote House of Zaor specifically to prove the philosophical analysis that I presented in Star Trek Lives. I sold House of Zayor on a money-back guarantee to the Spock fans. 
and never had one return. At that time, the, the hardcover book cost $5, and that was a whole lot of money. That was like $25 mm -hmm. today. So if you buy a $25 book and you're, you're disappointed in it, you're going to return it on that money-back guarantee. Yeah. Nobody, nobody returns that book. Well, I the, the the only problem with our show, The Trek Files, is that <laughs> we have this compressed amount of time, but I just really quickly want to get to, because I think we get it, it's just the fact that you all were coming up with this, you know, everybody was so enraptured in the moment to be standing back and trying to look at, you know, the meta, as we'd say today, to look at it analytically. So you, you guys broke down... The discovery effect, which is figuring out not only the show, but that other people like it too. The tailored effect, talking about the characters and environments all going to different audiences instead of just, here's this thing yes, I'm throwing out as a blunt instrument. The, we call that the tailored effect. And that was the idea, was to figure out exactly the answer to the question you first asked me. What made Star Trek different from other television shows? Right. What caused and this revolution? Right. Number one, it was science, real science fiction, not phony horror, not fantasy, real science fiction. And therefore, it appealed to the organized body of science fiction fandom. That's why Gene Roddenberry, the great genius, gave it its debut showing at the World Science Fiction Convention. Mm -hmm. That hooked the cadre of fandom that knows everybody who knows everybody. It's a network. Mm -hmm. At that time, yeah. the network operated by snail mail and by telephone, Ma Bell. At that, that was before the telephone right. company was broken up. So everybody had one telephone company. It was called Ma Bell. <laughs> and they made right. a bloody fortune off of us. Yep. AT&T. Well, so the tailored effect was finding audiences, getting different things to different audiences to, to have that joint effect. The Spock charisma, Spock shock, we've kind of touched on that and we get that. The optimism, which was much, we talk about that all the time, the aspirational future forward, you know, optimism of Star Trek. And the goal effect, um, which was interesting about everybody looking in themselves and, and, and giving of themselves rather than, oh, just settle for what you can get, trying to make the world better, trying to make yourself better. And then you had a chapter that introduced the world to fan fiction and kind of blew that up even more than it. Here's a question real quick, because we're going to have to wrap up, I know, here on time. Just before we um, leave, do you remember there being pushback to the book? Were people really that disappointed, or am I reading some overblown um, accounts here from back in the day? They thought it was going to be a history of fandom, and you got all analytical on people. And that uh, supposedly was... Oh, was, I see what you mean, yes. Well, yeah. originally, what they had heard a rumor of was a different book. It was oh, okay. That, you remember Sandra Marshak did a series of called, I think, The Voyager or something like that? Voyage or something that had fan fiction in it, an anthology of fan fiction in which Gene Laura had a story. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to be the center section of Star Trek Lives. But the oh. publisher decided, no, we can't do that. Fanfic, use fan fiction uh, professionally. Right. Or, now, let, or... let, me, let me just connect all of this together because it is one discussion. That fellow who 
bought my first story, short story, for Worlds of If is the same fellow who bought Star Trek Lives for a different publisher. Mm. Fred Paul, P-O-H-L. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, and and of the Sanjin universe and Star Trek Lives were both bought by that same editor. There's your connection. That's only one thread, one tiny millimeter thread, right? A micro right. millimeter thread. There are thousands and thousands of connecting tissue items to talk about. And that's the tapestry, as we say, love to say in Star Trek over and over again. Jacqueline, listen, I know we are, we're pushing our time here, but I'm going to have to ask you back. We're gonna, we've got some other documents in our, in our Trek files we can get into some of this with. Uh, you know, kill, uh, uh, we can cover lots of ground here. Um, can you do that? Can you come back and let's talk about this? You know, because I love connecting, speaking of connecting dots, I love connecting yesterday to today and showing why it's all <laughs> it's important to know and, and just gleaning that much texture but can you do that can you come back with us i would love to do that thank you very much that is awesome thank you so much i'm gonna look forward to that one the trek files is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry now all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the trek files now for more great podcasts check out podcast.roddenberry.com and for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at LarryNimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.